0: Sorry about that. Yeah, I just, um, I was spinning plasma. And sometimes the red blood cells are like, yeah, I don't really want to separate from plasma. And so it just, you have to spin it for a bit longer. And I knew that if I had an appointment, that that would be what happened today. So it was actually Cosmo's plasma. So you can blame it on him.
1: Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. That's Dr. Allison Van Innenam, a researcher at the University of California, Davis, talking about COSMO. And you will hear more about him and Dr. Van Innenam shortly. I asked her to pronounce her name so I could try to do it.
0: Van Innenam, Van
1: Innenam. Yes. So it could be, is it maybe Dutch or? Yeah, it's Dutch. Ah,
0: okay. It's actually my married name, so um, obviously I'm not Dutch, I'm Australian, um, but my husband's family is Dutch a few few generations back. Dutch dairy farmers, as fate would have it. So,
1: Before we get to Cosmo, let me just say a few things about this podcast. You can find some of my work in nature journals, which publish studies by working scientists. And they publish science journalism by science journalists like me. This podcast episode is a podcast about farm animals, and it's about human babies and germline gene editing. Some cautions for you. If you don't like meat, you might not like this podcast, although you might want to hear about projects related to livestock health and breeding in the tropics, or about reviving and restoring endangered species. You might not like this podcast if you do not want to hear about animal experiments, although we do know that many things intended for use in people are tested in animals first, and that is indeed fraught. Even if you have aversions of this kind, I would like to invite you to stay tuned to hear more about Alison Vaninenam's work. I asked her about her research and about Cosmo and about gene editing and about her thoughts on the fact that a team of scientists have gene edited the genome in human embryos, implanted them, and the pregnancy was taken to term. And I talked with her about the fact that some scientists think the technique of gene editing is ready to make what are sometimes, and unfortunately called, designer babies. Babies with genes edited before their birth. As you may remember, in 2018... He Zhang Kui and his lab at Southern University of Science and Technology in Shenzhen, China, took it upon themselves to gene-edit embryos and implant them into the uteruses of two women from whom they had removed eggs. These eggs had been fertilized in the lab. As I produce this podcast, He Zhang Kui is soon to be released from prison. The three children that resulted from the experiments in his lab are, according to sources I cannot name, doing okay. But that is very hard to know for sure. Not just because there is so much secrecy about these children, but also because the gene editing didn't, it seems, quite work in their case. He was trying to knock out a gene, the CCR5 gene. This would, in theory, make the individuals later resistant to HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. According to his presentation at the International Gene Editing Summit in November 2018, Nana, one of the babies, now a toddler, had changes in the CCR5 gene that might make her resistant to HIV. But her twin sister Lulu had a deletion in only one allele, one of the two copies of the gene, so she might not be HIV resistant. There was a third child, whom I call Amy, who resulted from work in the lab. Amy's genome is also apparently only edited in one of the two CCR5 alleles. All of these children are likely genetically mosaic. Not all of their cells have edited genomes. I wrote an article about these children for Nature Biotechnology, and the link is in the transcript, and I did a few other podcasts on these children too. This is episode 4 of the series, The CRISPR Children. There's no sequence. You're welcome to listen to them in any order. And there are transcripts for each of them. Gene editing can, in certain cases, perhaps help to avoid a heritable, incurable disease. But, as of right now, scientists tell me gene editing is not precise enough for such measures. And, of course, there is an ethics discussion to be had about whether such germline gene editing is advisable or permissible. Right now, it is neither. But there are some scientists... He is one, and there may be more, who have decided that technology can already be applied to human embryos, and that these embryos can be implanted in the body of a woman and taken to term. But as of right now, it's generally not considered permissible to do such experiments. Of course, policies and practices vary from one country to another. And yes, there are clinics one can find that offer the service of designer babies to parents-to-be. I asked Alison Van Inenam what she thought about this kind of offering. She is a mother of three with two living children.
0: I've got two pretty good kids. I'm pretty happy with them. <laughs> pretty you happy with what I got
1: naturally. <laughs> yes. And you you wouldn't advise, if people came to you and said, I, I really, you know, here's this brochure from this gene editing. Uh,
0: I would I, laugh because I, I just think the whole notion at the moment is is ridiculous. Um, so, Yeah. The only, I mean, the only reason ever would be a homozygous lethal um, condition that there's no other way around. Um, but even then, you know, it's 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 we're not at that level of precision. And and I've I've lost a baby. I had a stillborn, and it's like I wouldn't wish that on anybody, um, let alone, you know, 10 recipient women. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like the emotional toll of all of that too. You know, it, it's one thing when it's a surrogate cow, but... Um, you know, when you're talking about a baby and uh, having a, a loss um, because the, the editing didn't go correctly, or um, it's, it's it's that's an emotional toll right there.
1: The emotional toll of gene editing gone awry with a potential baby would be enormous. So. If heritable gene editing were ever to be adapted for use in people to avoid a deadly, incurable condition, for example, that cannot be avoided by genetic screening, before any of that is even considered, one would need to know more about how gene editing can be made much more precise than it is now, and to understand, among many other questions, how gene editing might affect development. Perhaps there are lessons to be learned from work with farm animals. They have longer gestation times than, say, mice do. Cattle are not a model organism or research organism, as they are sometimes called, such as fruit flies, which are heavily studied. Meat and milk producers want to know how the genomes of their animals can be altered to, for example, produce more milk or to have higher meat yield. They can do so with selection as they breed these animals, but they can, at least in theory, use gene editing. They certainly are keen on genetic knowledge. There is, for example, the 1,000 Bulls Project. Here's Alison Van Inanam.
0: I mean, the histo- history of that was that um, they wanted to do this, like, maybe six or seven years ago, when a 1,000 was, like, this audacious, hairy goal, right? And so um, they got together a group to do it and a lot of there was a lot of contribution from private companies because of course like artificial insemination companies um, wanted their bulls done and then they basically put those data in there and Hans runs the um, the analysis well actually Christy does um, and then they make the what's called the variant calling file available to members of the of the consortium uh, and so everyone that's in the consortium benefits from having all the other bulls because then you get a, you know, a really um, detailed variant calling file. Um, and that's, that's right on the edge of what I know about variant calling files. Anyway, it's, it's basically, a, it's, it says this is where SNPs are in the bovine genome, basically. Anyone can join. You just have to be able to sequence, uh, it I used to be, um, I believe, 30, animals is was what the we actually got in because we did the sequencing for that nature biotech paper that uh I mentioned where we had the offspring and we needed we needed the dams and we needed the bulls so we had enough to get in um and so that gave titus and and other people at uc davis access so we are one of the partner members or whatever now but i haven't sequenced enough to get into them it's kind of they update the variant calling file every I don't know, two years or something, and you needed more bull sequence to get into the next thing, and um, it just what I haven't, I didn't have enough, so I I'm not in it at the moment.
1: The Thousand Bulls Project has identified over 100 million genetic variants.
0: I mean, yeah, there there's I mean there's a lot of data. The reason there's so much data is because there's a commercial interest in the getting the genotypes and and you know the the holy grail of trying to find these um, functional s- snips, right? And so um, that's that's kind of always, if you read the grant applications, that's always the um, the rationale. Um, but I'm not really sure that there's been that many that have, um, you know, there's there's only a, a handful of of genes that have kind of big effects on these quantitative traits. They tend to be multigenic and um, you know that they're influenced by hundreds of different genes. So there's not a there's no magic bullet, so to speak, of you know a snip that you know I laugh when people say, oh, you know they're going to make smart kids or whatever. And I'm like, as if you know there's an edit that makes you smart. You know it's it's just it's these polygenic traits, and, and especially in animals. And I don't know why there's such a difference between plants tend to have like you know they'll have resistance genes that make them resistant to rust or whatever. And I, it's just it's much more polygenic, I think, in animals for whatever reason. I, I don't really understand the biology, but it, most of our traits are quantitative and are best addressed with genomic selection um, and phenotypes and, you know, good old-fashioned blup and um, genomic relationship matrices and the likes that uh, isn't, isn't as sexy as, you know, a single gene giving you a milk, milk yield or whatever. But there are a couple of, you know, startling examples where there's one gene, DGAT, that, you know, that one variant increases milk yield and the other variant increases the protein concentration or whatever. And so it has this really big effect. And so, of course, dairy producers have kind of selected for it because it does you know, it has this big effect. And I think it's even handled differently in their genetic evaluations versus normal quantitative traits. So that's kind of pulled out as, a, you know, a big effect gene that you actually take note of the genotype there.
1: Variation matters for cattle breeding and in case the industry ever decides to present gene-edited cattle for beef production.
0: I think it's also important to understand that variation because as we approach the FDA with our animals, they're wanting me to show that there are no unintended alterations. (laughs) And I'm like every animal's got millions so you know i don't know which one i did and which one god did but um you know it's it's just not possible to, to it's not like it's a static genome um, and depending on the breed there's going to be literally and you will that nature biotech paper we had um most recently where we looked at those genome edited bulls you know we we said there's it's no more there's no more variation than you see between Holsteins and, you know, Herefords, for example. In fact, there's more variation there than there are between our genome-edited bulls and their uh, cells that were edited. And so, to me, it's a little bit of a um, an unanswerable question to prove that you didn't alter anything <laughs> when there's so much background
1: alterations. Now it's time for Cosmo. He was April the seventh. Cosmo was born on April 7, 2020. Alison Van Innenam and her PhD student Joseph Van Owen did gene editing. They used CRISPR-Cas9 in bovine embryos to insert, using microinjection, the SRY gene. They inserted this gene into a region on chromosome 17 called H11. That's a so-called safe harbor region where no essential genes would be disrupted. They also ferried in the gene that encodes for green fluorescent protein, GFP for short. Their idea was to use the GFP as a reporter gene, as a marker, to help with screening to identify the embryos with the inserted SRY gene. What's special about SRY, the sex-determining region Y, is that it encodes for the gene that shapes male sexual development in cattle. They wanted to insert this gene, That takes cutting the genome and the cell repairs the cut and includes the inserted gene in the process. They also wanted a specific kind of repair mechanism. They wanted it to be homology-mediated end-joining, which it seems is more efficient than the classic way cells repair DNA breaks, and that is called homology-directed repair, or HDR. So they wanted homology-mediated end-joining, HMEJ. And they wanted all this to take place on the X chromosome. So they did the editing. Nine embryos were transferred to surrogate cows, one of which became pregnant. Nine months later, a male bull calf was born Cosmo. He weighed 110 pounds. He is the world's first bull that had a knocked-in gene that was mediated by HMEJ. Here's Allison Van Inanam.
0: What was unique about him is mostly knock-ins are done in somatic cells because that's when the HDR pathway is active. So in embryonic cells, that's not a very active pathway, and so it's it's relatively easy to get knockouts, but it's quite difficult to get knock-ins. Um, and so basically, he's the first um, bovine with a large knock-in, and when I say large, um, there was the intentional knock-in, which was the SRY gene. But to help us in the situation we have with large animals is, um, you know, it's super expensive to do embryo transfers. And so I can't throw in 20 embryos if only 40% of them are edited um, because it's just that's like 20 cows times keeping them for a year is expensive. So we need a way to identify which animals had the knock in or which embryos. And so we added a GFP marker gene on there um, so we could screen for green eggs and ham basically, right, before we did the transfer. And so um, that was kind of um, how we were, were able to successfully get a knock-in. So you can get high rates of knocking with some of the newer technologies, um, but it's hard to get the bigger templates in. Um, and so that's that was what was kind of unique about him. And then it, it, as it happened, it went in, multiple copies so there's uh we'll we'll deal with that but it'll be inherited I think as a single you know it's it's basically one locus um and so I think we'll be able to clearly see whether or not the hypothesis works that you know if sry goes to an xx individual what's the phenotype um because if the phenotype is uh you know an animal that doesn't grow as well as a regular male then it's not of interest (laughs) Um, and We don't know. So I I guess we have to test that hypothesis because in humans, you you get this condition and sometimes you get totally normal appearing males that um, just show up kind of infertile. And then you'll get others where you've got these OB testes and it's like they're kind of ambiguous in their appearance and everything. So, you know, obviously we would in our, we would hope that we'll get animals that look male. They're, they'll be in for sure, but they need to grow like a male. Otherwise, they're not useful for um, food production or beef.
1: Cosmo's genome was edited before his birth, and he has a knock-in. Deletions are more common with gene editing, but in his case, it's a knock-in. He is the first bull that has a gene knock-in. A cell has elaborate DNA repair mechanisms. One of them is called HR for short, homologous recombination. HR is not or not very active in embryos. Alison Vaninenem considered a different approach, HMEJ or homology-mediated end-joining, which she had heard works better for knocking in genes. A lot of work in gene editing is done in cells and in mice. Alison Vaninenem follows closely what happens in mouse labs, what, as she calls, the rodent people do. Not only did she want to knock in a gene, she wanted a way to see if the embryo had been gene-edited or not. So she and her team added to the sequence that they wanted to edit in a so-called GFP construct, a section of DNA that encodes for green fluorescent protein. That means if the gene was knocked in, you could check and see if the cells were edited, expose them to a certain wavelength of light, and the protein will be activated and glow. Mind you, this is not something that would be permissible with human embryos. And just a reminder here, editing human embryos and transferring them and taking them to term is not permissible in human embryos. Alison van Eenenem is working with cattle, and she was going to try something that had been done in mice.
0: Again, the rodent people um, have been working on trying to get increased rates of homology direct or direct directed repair in, in, um, in embryos. And so there was a 2017 paper in MICE where they um, basically just added. Um, So normally you have your your construct and your arms, and then they added the CRISPR target site on each end. Um, And in that paper, they had increased rates of of knock-in, and I I can't think it was 40% or something. It's in the video, I think, the numbers. So... So Joey said, well, let's try that because we have been having trouble getting knock-ins. So he tried that and we saw we were getting about 40% knock-ins using that approach um, since then. And then, of course, you know, so you see the idea, then you try it, then you optimize it, then you transfer, then there's a pregnancy, then the animal's born. And in the meantime, the mice people have tried some other approaches um, that using single-stranded DNA template that actually um, has, I think it's called CRISPR-Easy, if I'm not mistaken, where you have the templates on the end, I mean, the the target on the end, but you use short homology arms, like 50 to 100 base pairs, and you can get as big of a gene as, um, I think maybe the biggest was like 1.3 KB, um, which is good for like re- reporter gene, but SRY in our case is 1.8. So there's no one else has really got a good approach to do bigger uh, constructs, especially when we added GFP in there, then it became 4.5 or something. And so that's um, why we chose HMEJ. Um, and so and we were getting 40% knock-in rates. Um, and so then we just had to screen them and pick the green ones and then transfer those to the cows.
1: One of the issues with gene editing of embryos, for example, cattle embryos, but this is also true if you edit the genomes of human embryos, is that you don't know if the gene editing has worked. In the case of the gene-edited children, what seems to have happened? In the case of the gene-edited children, what seems to have happened is that the gene editing didn't quite work. In all likelihood, the children are genetically mosaic. Some cells are edited and some are not. And there may have been so-called off-target edits. These are unintended genetic changes in different parts of the genome. You can't draw direct parallels from animals to people, or from one animal species to another. But there are lessons to be had from animals. Here's one. Sometimes the backbone, the template used to ferry in the gene to be knocked in, also gets inserted into the genome. That happened with Cosmo. Alison Vaninenam talks about this template integration and work with mice in which that also happened. and she talks about mosaicism.
0: I mean, I think there's there's a lot of mass literature. mass people do this a lot. Um, so Jack's labs does, they make some knock-ins for us for various experiments we're doing. And we'll routinely get 20 different founders and you know, 10 will get thrown out because they've got backbone. 10 will get thrown or five will get thrown out because they integrated at some random non-targeted site and then you'll get, you know, two or three that have tandem insertions at the target site and then you get one that's got the gene targeted correctly at the target site. And, and like, it happens so routinely that nobody thinks anything about it. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to, well, we, we did spend a lot of time Figuring out exactly when to introduce the editing reagents to reduce mosaicism um, and so we we spent two years going into m2 oocytes so just prior to fertilization so we were trying to target the x chromosome originally for sry because we wanted the x to have the sry and then the y would have its own sry and so all the male would, all offspring would be male and the x chromosome of a male is going to be present in the oocyte right because the, the Y is going to come from dad and the X is going to be the from. So we were trying to target in the X chromosome of M2 oocytes, which means we in vitro matured them. Then we stripped the cumulus cells off them and we micro-injected them. Then we put the cumulus cells back on them and then we uh, uh, per, uh, fertilized them. And then um, we then we cultured them seven days and then they went to blastocysts and doing all of that really reduces the the probability of them going all the way to a seven day blastocyst, which is what what we transfer into our surrogate cows. Um, But we were trying to do that because we thought if we could get that knock in at that, you know, not even a zygotic stage at the oocyte, then there's only one X chromosome. There's no opportunity for mosaicism if we did that. And so... We did do that for um, the paper came out a little while ago in scientific reports, but um, the, what we found is that if we did it at six hours post-insemination. So in other words, um, mature, fertilize, let them sit with the semen for six hours, then strip the cumulus and the, and the semen away and do your microinjection. Then it's called denuding when you do that. You denude the OS or the zygote and it six hours, we got better blastocyst rates and no difference in the knock-in rate um, or the mosaicism rate. And so, you know, it's it's one of these trade-offs. Like, you know, it, it's it, the longer you leave the semen in there, the better fertility you'll get and the the more mosaicism you'll get if you go in later. And so you want, ideally, you go in early, but that decreases your um fertility and you'll get less blastocysts and it's a numbers game I mean we're you know typically working with 400 blastocysts and if you go much below 10% then you've only got 40 and after you micro inject them they don't appreciate getting micro injected so then you know you've got maybe 10 to transfer and some of them look halfway not very good so ideally you would like you know a nice selection of healthy zygotes or blastocyst transfer and so it's always a numbers game and um you know microinjection takes a long time too and the way that it works with the six hour fertilization and the microinjection is typically we start microinjecting about midnight <laughs> so you know if you do too many you go you get too far after fertilization and after after about 4 a.m you just you can't you just just lose it you know you, you just can't do a good job anymore and so there's kind of a finite limit in terms of the personnel to into. and so um we have we spent a lot of time optimizing all that um and then anyway so and we found that six hours and I have no idea what the human person did um but I understand that those um uh children were a mosaic um and so I'm Kinda of guessing that he probably went in later rather than earlier. Be my guess, but I, I don't. I read I mean, the paper. I don't think it's being published anywhere, has it?
1: The paper with details about what He Jung-Kui and his team did. The Gene Editing in Three Human Embryos, has not been published. Since it's considered unethical work, it's not clear how one might publish it, for example, in order to have the scientific community study what has happened in the case of the three toddlers who were gene-edited before their birth. In my story in Nature Biotechnology and in other podcast episodes, I ask researchers about this and how one can learn from what he did. There are three girls, Lulu, Nana, and a third girl I call Amy, and who has different parents than the twins Lulu and Nana. And they are likely genetically mosaic. Some of their cells have been edited and some have not. It's unclear if they run a particular health risk because of that or because of the gene editing more generally. Alison Vanine does not work in human embryos. She works with cattle. She found a way, as she describes, to avoid Cosmo from being mosaic, how do you take care of mosaic people? And- <laughs> I don't know. Indeed, it's unclear what kind of medical tests Lulu, Nana, and Amy might need because of the gene editing that was performed on them. But what is highly likely is that they are genetically mosaic. Some cells are edited and some cells are unchanged, which geneticists call wild type. With farm animals such as cattle and sheep, it's not considered useful to have mosaic animals. Alison van Inenam explains.
0: So that's, yeah, that's the worst of all worlds because then you've got some wild type left. (laughs) Um, And so like in our case, um, well, not these animals. I've got some more animals on the ground that um, we're looking at uh, inactivating certain proteins to give us a particular phenotype. Um, And in those, and we actually have mosaics and we have full mockouts. so biallelic nobody's left in, in the shop. Um, and the mosaics are effectively useless because if they don't have the phenotype, then I don't know if it's because they're 60% wild type. And if they do have the phenotype, I'll never really know if that's the full expressed phenotype or if that wild type protein is modulating the, the, the characteristic in some way. So in this particular case, the sheep I've got, they're meant to grow to, um, they are meant to grow, it's a high growth phenotype. Um, and I actually, I have those two mosaic animals out there. We did that using 18 hour um, microinjection, And that was before Joey, and we had been doing all this work on the earlier, because, um, so this is, this is how the history happened. So historically in AI, artificial insemination for dairy cows, you collect the OS and it's done everywhere, right? It's routinely done. And you'll collect the OS sites, you'll add your fertilization media. That usually goes in around 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And there was an 18-hour uh, fertilization. Because everyone went home and they came in the next morning. That was about eighteen hours, and so.
1: That's, and these are just eggs in a particular yeah. phase. They could be in any any phase, right? You don't know. They're, well,
0: they're, they're zygotes getting fertilized, basically. So they've had their they've had their culture for twenty four days to get them matured from in vitro mature, and then they're fertilized for eighteen hours, and you get good fertility, and you get lots of zygotes, and then they get transferred, and and everybody's happy. So that's a protocol that everybody used forever. And then it's like, then it was like, well, is that really the best time, you know, is that really the best approach for what we're trying to do? Or should we go in early when it's a one cell zygote before it splits into the two cell stage to try to reduce mosaicism? And so that's when we started, well, what if we only fertilize for six hours? Well, our fertility goes down, but we get let reduced rates of mosaicism. And so for us, that's more important than, you know, if we get instead of getting 40 blastocysts we get 10 blastocysts but they're all non-mosaic that's a better bet for us than getting 40 mosaic blastocysts so those are the types of things that in a long lived species like cattle where you've got three years to get to maturity and have their own offspring you you don't really want a mosaic because it's god you know (laughs) you really need to breed that out of them um and that's that's a you know that's a decade uh and so that's typically what they do that in mice all the time they're often mosaic in fact the way they do their editing it's almost invariably mosaic because they take them out at the two-cell stage Um, and so they don't they're not typically not doing in vitro they typically let the mouse mate with a male and then they flush that um, zygote out and usually it's by then that two-cell stage so um, yeah, what we do in cattle is a bit different to what they do in mice. Um, sure. And they don't care that much about mosaicism. and they can breed it out in three months. right? It's, yeah. they, can, they just need a transmitter that has to go into the germline. But if the rest of the body, somatic bodies, not that, they don't care. They just want germline founders. And so if they get that, they're happy. They actually don't even typically pay any attention to the founder line because it's known that that's going to be mosaic and therefore unreliable. And so you'll, like, when I order a mouse from Jack's lab, they'll, they won't give me the founder. They'll give me the F1, um, because then they know that it's at least heterozygote, um, it, ho- hopefully homozygote in a perfect world. But, um, it, and, and that way, it's it, and every cell has the same genotype, which is, of course, the definition of a mosaic, is that not every cell has a same genotype.
1: The idea with gene editing in animals such as cattle is to explore new approaches to cattle breeding and also to explore basic biology. It's a way to learn more from mammals with a longer gestation than mice. For others, this work might offer insight down the line how one might or definitely might not apply germline gene editing to people. The case of germline gene editing, the offerings of designer babies definitely are ethically dubious and scientifically they overpromise.
0: I I can't think of a single trait other than trying to address a recessive condition, lethal condition. But in terms of designer babies, I'm really not sure what traits we have that kind of understanding of. Um, Maybe eye colour, maybe. Um, But, yeah, I, I... you know, even in livestock, I can come up with a handful of genes that might, you might edit. But I certainly can't come up with 100, um, even with all of our sequence data, um, you know. And so I think it's, it's these traits are not single gene traits. They're not Mendelian. The only Mendelian traits typically are recessive autosomals.
1: The idea Hezhang Kui had was to confer immunity to HIV by editing the CCR5 gene. And one wonders if some might think perhaps one can edit the ACE2 receptor. That's the receptor that SARS-CoV-2 latches onto on cells. This is the virus that causes COVID-19. Might someone try to edit in immunity to COVID-19? Lots of issues there. And it's likely SARS-CoV-2 can find other ways to the cell. Alison Am finds this concept of editing the ACE2 gene to confer immunity scientifically questionable.
0: He vaccinate did. him too yes now we <laughs> like, can i i actually i must admit i haven't really followed what he did um and yeah I, I i guess i i find that you know the what we do in livestock is so fundamentally different to to me in terms of the ethical issues involved that to, to kind of conflate the two is a slippery pathway um in in my opinion because we're we're growing these animals to kill and eat that's that is their function in the world um and so the minute you start anthropomorphizing that and you know it's like well how long is is body guy going or is um you know cosmo gonna live till he's produced semen <laughs> it's like he's, and so i will never get a longevity Information on him because we don't keep farm animals for the term of their natural lives, right? And so I think there's just fundamental differences in terms of the role of, of food animals versus human editing.
1: Beyond the role of food animals, there is the possibility of using cattle to explore various types of questions in reproductive medicine. Just in terms of approaches, human reproductive medicine labs use similar equipment to a lab like the lab of Alison Van Inanam,
0: you know, in in some ways, cattle are quite analogous in terms of fertility clinic work, in terms of what we do versus what human people do to to do an embryo transfer um, into, you know, into a female. Um, And so I think, you know, versus mice, where you're doing different things to get, you know, we just go and get a slaughterhouse ovaries. Um, That's that's the source of our oocytes. Um, We don't care who the mother is basically uh, we just want viable eggs versus you know human fertility clinic obviously it's it's that lady's eggs that whoever's trying to get pregnant or whatever so it's you know there's a fundamental difference there and then if we produce 400 and throw away 390 I don't really care <laughs> uh whereas you know every guy every prize a special guy I imagine in a human IVF lab so I think that there's some little differences there but in terms of the equipment we use, we order from the same companies and we have to sign a thing saying we're not doing human um, work when we order our supplies because, uh, uh, yeah, there's, they want you to verify that this is not being used for human applications.
1: With Cosmo, the gene-edited bull, the scientists did a lot of sequencing of samples to look through the genome of the zygote. Cosmo has no wild-type cells. He is not genetically mosaic. Alison Vaninenem explains what his gene-edited genome reveals.
0: No, he's not. No no wild-type cells. Um, Well, okay, so whole genome sequence and PacBio runs. um, And we had 80X coverage times 3. So that's really high-density coverage. And there were 11 reads of wild-type and my bioinformatician said that's just, you know, fluff in the air. That's that's not that's not legit. So he has, so he's biallelic. allelic So in other words, both chromosome 17s were cut, but he's not, um, he's he's what's called a compound heterozygote. So the, the mutation are different on the two allele or the two homologs. One is a 24-base pair insertion. Um, just like an indel, it's just a little bit of whatever. It's not, it's just a, it's a typical NHEJ repair. Like, oh my God, we, someone cut my chromosome in half. I need to stick it back together. So that's what's typically called an indel or in this case, an in. Um, and then the other one is the one that got the, um, the SRY GFP Um, and then but it got it in multiple copies and it also got a copy of the backbone (laughs) so I think it's and and so there's so there's that then um, so that and they're about equal so there's like you know 80 million reads of the the 24 base pair and then 80 million reads of the the big guy Um, and I think that ended up being 30 six kilobases long because it was kind of in in various orientations. But it actually happened that two orientations came together, um, like forward, forward, reverse, reverse, which is actually an inverted repeat. And it looks like there was some sort of a recombination um, after the initial insertion such that some of the daughter cells from that, uh, that original insertion, have a a smaller um, insertion that's missing four copies and basically the inverted repeat looks like it looped out and so those cells a subset and it's a much it's like maybe five percent of the of that subset got that and all of the other junctions are exactly the same which is why I think it's a kind of a daughter of a recombination Rather than a separate e- editing event, um, because the, the the sequences are perfect everywhere except where this thing leaked out. And so you know, we've done all this preliminary work, and we've never seen plasmid insert. We look, and we've never seen it before. <laughs> and Of course, the minute we make a make an animal, um, we get this you know kind of um, con- concatenation and and the plasmid insert. But that's that's fine. I mean. It, for for our purposes it's it's not a big drama it, it, it will be used as a big drama probably because because um, of the plasmid insert that was in the polled animals and um, it's um, obviously would not be acceptable for a commercial um, you know going going commercial with an animal but for research purposes we got our gene in and that's what we needed to do and so um, you know I it, it doesn't it's not a Not an issue in that regard, I don't think. So, um, you know, I I do get a little bit worried with seven copies because sometimes if you have multiple copies, you can you can get shut down of of the gene. So we really won't know till, you know, Cosmo, um he's eight months old now. Is he eight 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 months old? Um and you'd be interested to know his scrotal circumference this morning was 29.5 (laughs) centimetres. Um and yes. I did the measurement. Um, and so... Does he let uh, you do that?
1: I mean, like, or do you have to somehow give him something sweet or something, uh, a treat? No, I, I, he, he's, in a,
0: he's in a cattle chute, so he can't, he's, he's kind of constrained. But um, so 32 is uh, what is typically um, considered to be a uh, mature-sized scrotum. And so he's probably a couple of months away from producing semen. And I think what'll be fun... Is that I think you know if everything works well, that half of the um, embryos that we inseminate with him should be green, <laughs> um, and so what, that'll be kind of our first look as to whether it looks like the gene's still expressing. And so there is some shutdown sometimes of viral promoters, and he's got an SV40 promoter on there. So you know there's there's still some risks, and it's 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 never over till the fat lady sings, right? And so. Uh, it could it could be that you know his offspring that inherit that that are XX are just happy girls. <laughs> so you know I, I guess I, and it's just it's you just it just takes a long time to do these experiments and so that's what research is it's, it's waiting for these things to to be able to test them.
1: So once Cosmo produces semen, she can bank the semen and use it to fertilize eggs in the lab to see if the gene is expressed in the embryo, the green fluorescent protein will light up. Since Cosmo has multiple copies of the SRY gene, though, it could be that the gene might no longer be expressed, in which case there will be no green fluorescence. Perhaps you don't care about farm animals. You don't eat beef. That's okay. But perhaps you care about conservation biology because to help a species come back from the brink of extinction, for example, conservation biologists have to find ways to support their reproductive physiology.
0: Absolutely. The Revive and Restore group, uh, we actually have a project with them. And, you know, they're doing that, they just did the horse, the um, Chabolsky's horse, I think it is, that they resurrected from uh, like a 27 year old. Cell line and brought back genetics to an, an otherwise, you know, uh, it had gone through a really nasty bottleneck, and so they're working on that, and then they're uh, trying to do the the white rhino and uh, clone and gestate that. And I guess you know, I knowing what I know about how hard it is for us to do this in a really well understood domestic species where we totally know how to superovulate that, you know, we know how to do everything. I look at those rhino people and I'm like, oh, good luck. <laughs> you know, that's a big ask. Um, so I, I'm not saying it couldn't be done, but it's, um, you know, even with all the knowledge we have of reproductive um, techniques, it's, that's a big ask.
1: There are lessons from cattle to be had about gene editing, about human physiology and conservation biology. Alison Van Inanam was invited to an experimental biology meeting, which is quite unlike the livestock meetings she otherwise attends.
0: We're a totally different communities. We we really like we have very different objectives and aims. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of um, anti-animal ag and, you know, don't eat meat people kind of that in that. In that thing but we actually do very similar work we just you know work in different species and, and so it was kind of interesting to be at that meeting and and hear all of the different things that they were doing butterflies and all the rest of it but um yeah no i think there's and there's some unusual allies i guess maybe groups that historically have been um you know philosophically differ from each other see a shared use of for example these technologies for um um re- restoration and conservation purposes and um, i think in a way that you know probably historically an animal geneticist wouldn't, or a cattle geneticist wouldn't have been invited to a, a journal of experimental biology meeting right so uh, i think yeah and it's it's kind of opening up some new conversations revive and restore for example um you know, those ty- those types of groups and and some, uh, you know, unlikely allies, perhaps. So if, if, you know, you get a bunch of greenies upset about not being able to use this technology, you know, imagine if they put all of that political power to, to good instead of stopping
1: things. Indeed, greenies do get in the way sometimes. Yes, I know. I understand. I don't necessarily agree with Dr. Van here. Some environmentalists have important points to make. But of course, it's OK for her to think differently. I asked her how Cosmo was doing and if his behaviour was any different than the behaviour she typically sees in cattle.
0: Um, I mean, he's, he's just in our regular herd. So he's actually in the pen with an uh, XX male that uh, was identified through genome, genomic selection. So the, the AI company that he was being tested for sent his DNA in to get genome genomic uh, tested, and it came back XX. And they're like, oh, stupid lab! You know, they mixed up our sample or whatever. So they sent him in again, and it came back XX. And it's like they went and looked, and it's like there's a penis there. What's going on here? And so we carrier him, and he um, is uh, not SRY negative XX male. So
1: it's missing. I mean, it's just it's it's a deletion.
0: No, no SRY is usually on the Y chromosome, so. Yeah, a female normally doesn't have SRY, so he's a male. He's he, he's got a penis and um and but he's XX, um, and so he is kind of an interesting guy because he's a little bit of a control for our females that we get from from Cosmo, because they'll be SRY positive XX, and he's SRY negative XX, um, and so. He's in the in, in the pen with Cosmo, so he's missing S O I doesn't have any S O I. Cosmo's got seven copies, right? So they're on balance, they're
1: <laughs> but it's so, also interesting, but, right? You've got what is the what is the transgender community? You know, they always talk about continuity and and all this. So you know, yeah, in the animal. I, world... I'm
0: always very careful to use the term sex because we're talking about animals here, and I never use the term gender. Um, and this is a little bit of a touchy topic, and so. This particular individual um, is, so he, I'm also doing the similar measurements on him and he's quite distinctly different to Cosmo. Um, and so we're doing um, hormone assays and the like. And he's a naturally occurring animal. So he's, we found him through colleagues in the AI industry. Um, and so, and I we have another one coming too. So, I, <laughs> I think they're more common than actually people. So normally if you found a a male that was XX and a bull that was infertile, you know, you just chop its head off and eat it, right? It's not, you wouldn't, it's no use to agriculture and people would probably be like, I don't know why he's infertile, but he is, off he goes. Versus, you know, then maybe that happens once every, I don't know, 10,000 animals or 100,000 animals. It might be more common than we know just because people don't normally karyotype bulls. Um, but since we've been kind of working on this project, we've identified two. <laughs> um, and so I think they're probably more common. And, and I think to your earlier comment, and I wouldn't put this in your article, but with regards to the fluidity of, of um, you know, gender, uh, that it's true in, in all species too. And um, these, you know, that these, these types of things happen um, all
1: the time. So male and female animals, and yes, I don't want to say transgender animals, but anyway, male and female animals can have a range, a spectrum of, let's call it identities. Cosmo is XX and has been gene edited to have an SRY gene on the X chromosome. And he has seven copies of SRY. In his pen is an XX bull who has no SRY gene. Gene editing in cattle is, for example, relevant to the development of tropical livestock, such as through the work of the CTLGH. That stands for the Center for Tropical Livestock Genetics and Health. That's an international collaboration focused on ways to improve how livestock can be kept and used for agriculture in the tropics.
0: Even with the cattle, there's those issues because of the, um, not the Cartagena Protocol, the Nagoya, Nagoya Protocol. Um, So, you know, you have to do all of these agreements and it basically just makes it impossible to do any work collaboratively. Um, And so I think that it's a double-edged sword and um, I understand that the the incentive for it was pure, um, but the application is actually quite problematic um, for collaborative work. I work or I advise the... um, uh, CTLGH, the Centre for Tropical Livestock Genome Something A, I'm not sure. H. Tropical. Health? Tropical Health. It's oh. out of Roslin Institute. Um, and it works. It's a Bill and Melinda Gates funded thing. It's also got some Divid funding, and they basically are trying to work on developing resilient uh, breeds of cattle in in Africa. Um, and the person Karen Marshall, she works at Ilri, the International. Livestock Research Institute in Kenya, I think she spends half her life um, dealing with Nagoya protocols to get access, to be able to sequence these bulls so that we can do much like the thousand genome Bull project. Um, But the hurdles that that they have to go through, I mean, it's just it's kind of mind blowing. And it's like, are we really helping these countries by (laughs) by doing this? Or are we actually making it more difficult for um, researchers to collaborate? And I, you know, I think there's a, there's a balance there um, that's not quite being met.
1: Alison M edits the genomes of cattle and knows of colleagues, for example, who edit the genomes of horses.
0: Yeah, the horse people are an interesting crowd. Um, so they, they have a lot of rules and regulations about, um, and I, I think I've got this right, but I, I think... That if you breed a mare with a thoroughbred, the stallion has to be within sight of the mare um, for it to be registered. So you can't collect semen and send it, you know, over to another state and inseminate the mare. That doesn't count. You have to, and so it's a way. <laughs> I hate to say this, but it's a way to keep the price of services high. So. If you can do what the the dairy industry does, where you get, you know, the best bull in the world for a $20 semen straw, well, I don't need to own a bull. Uh, You know, I can get the best semen already. And so they tried to kind of keep it elite so that um, there's a limited number of offspring and supply and demand. You know how that works. Um, So there's no,
1: uh, what is his name? Pona chief? uh, Oh, I forgot.
0: uh, Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's, um, I mean, there's the little bit of cloning that goes on with horses, but that tends to be more the polo crowd, um, not the racehorse crowd, because uh, the the polo people um, seem to believe, and also um, um, cutting horses and that type of thing. That, and it, I don't know, behavior is that those behaviors are particularly heritable or not, but they they are in the minds of these wealthy horse owners and most horse owners are not agriculturalists they're usually got their money from somewhere else so money is no object Um, versus in agriculture you know money is an object and so you have kind of different different um objectives but i don't you know there is i know a gentleman in um brazil that's been doing some horse editing to do myostatin knockouts um, because everybody does myostatin knockouts and everyone that does them is a male. And I I don't know why, but that's just my observation. Um, And so they, um, you know, I don't know if that is going to make horses run faster. Like I don't think of very muscular people being fast runners, Um, but I think that's kind of what they're, what they're trying to do. But let's just say I wanted to edit someone to be a fast runner, human or horse. What gene would I edit? I have no idea. Like, I don't think that's a single gene trait. <laughs> um, myostatin certainly is. That's a double muscle gene that makes you very muscular. But that's just like, you know, a great big muscly person or horse. And and maybe, but I think, you know, Farlap, a very famous Australian um, horse, He when he was um, uh, uh autopsied, it's not the right, necropsied after he died, Um, his heart was twice as big as a normal horse. And that's what made him run fast. It wasn't that he had like big muscles or whatever. So I think it's not obvious to me what you would do to performance enhance a horse from a genome editing perspective.
1: Another animal in which some labs explore gene editing are chickens. Labs are editing the germ cells in chickens.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Fully reduced to practice, so and and excitingly um, combined with surrogate sire technology. Um, so knocking out the germ lines, you can basically have a chicken that's got no germ cells of its own, but has genome edited germ cells populating its its both its uh, um, the testes in the case of a of a male and the and the ovary in the case of a female. So that when those two mate. You get a homozygous um animal of a different breed so you could, you know just I, i'll go simple but you could have white leghorns that have the, the gonads of a black i don't know black chicken an australorp um, and when those two mate they'll produce all australorp offspring um, and they'll be genome edited for whatever you did and so roslyn institute has uh, done that mike mcgrew i think is the researcher there um, and that's actually part of the CTLGH, so the, that thing I mentioned a minute ago, the uh, Center for Tropical Livestock GH.
1: When working with chickens, editing genomes the way she describes using surrogate sire technology, you give an animal gene-edited germ cells. The animal has no eggs or sperm of its own. What gene-editing labs see as an advantage is that there will be no mosaic animals, no animals with differing genotypes in their cells
0: the beauty of that is that it's going to be non-mosaic right because yeah you're putting in germ cells that are edited so there's no chance of mosaicism with surrogate sire technology which is makes it very appealing and certainly there's lots of people working on that in uh, mammals john john oatley had a paper out earlier this year uh, in pnas doing it in pigs and goats um and well, they it hasn't. It's reduced to practice in mice, but they haven't reduced it to practice in. Um, well, they've got. They have a picture of one sperm that they've got developing in a gonad, but I haven't seen any fertile offspring or offspring that have been produced from large animals. But they have done that in mice.
1: Yes. Oh, yes. Mice. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Every, uh-huh. You can
0: do everything in mice. This is my hypothesis. Um, it's. It just seems to be more malleable than, or maybe there's just more experiments getting done, but um, yeah, everything that works in a mouse almost never translates across.
1: Exploratory germline gene editing is underway in animals such as cattle, chickens and horses, other animals too. With people, germline gene editing is not permissible in most countries. Labs are exploring gene editing in gametes, in sperm and eggs in many animals, and some are thinking about exploring this approach in people. As of right now, gene-edited animals in agriculture are not allowed to enter the food chain. There's a lot going on in this field, and I plan to keep following it. And I wanted to add that since doing this interview with Alison Van Innenem, COSMO has been euthanized. The team has collected semen from him. They have used his semen to produce blastocysts. And they see that the inner cell mass fluoresces green, or at least 50% of them do. That is, in the ones that inherited the GFP on chromosome 17. As of yet, there are no COSMO calves. Allison Van Innenem has not secured the funding for that yet. That would be an experiment in which eggs are fertilized with his sperm, and the blastocysts are transferred to a surrogate cow to carry a pregnancy. I spoke with Alison Vaninenen mainly about cattle, but we did also talk about the experiments by He Zhang Kui, whose lab's work led to three children who were gene-edited before their birth. Badly done, unethical human experiments.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm just interested from a, you know, someone that edits embryos,
1: what he did. The manuscripts of the work by He jean Kui have not been published in a journal. They are also not on any preprint server, which is where papers can be found that have not been peer reviewed. According to sources, the manuscripts were rejected. It is certainly complicated to decide what to do with unethical experiments and records of them. I have a bit more about that in my article and in a forthcoming podcast. I asked Alison Van Inenem about this idea of companies offering parents-to-be a service to help them have babies, to have children with genomes edited before birth. And you may have heard her comments on this earlier in this podcast. It seems to me after hearing a bit more about her work, you might hear what she says differently. Here you go.
0: I've got two pretty good kids. So I'm pretty happy with them. <laughs>
1: pretty you happy with what i got naturally <laughs> yes and you you wouldn't advise if people came to you and said I, I really you know here's this brochure from this gene editing uh f- i would I,
0: laugh because i i just think the whole notion at the moment is is ridiculous um so yeah the only i mean the only reason ever would be a homozygous lethal um condition that there's no other way around um but even then you know it's 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 We're not at that level of precision, and and I've I've lost a baby. I had a stillborn, and it's like I wouldn't wish that on anybody, um, let alone you know ten recipient women. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like the emotional toll of all of that too. You know, it, it's one thing when it's a surrogate cow, but um, you know, when you're talking about a baby and uh, having a a loss um, because the, the editing didn't go correctly, or um, it's it's it's. That's an emotional toll right there. Maybe, maybe a better approach is to fix the gametes rather than trying, because it's unknown in the embryo, but if you can fix the gametes, look at some of these surrogate sire technologies that are being created, you know, in the chicken, for example. And yeah, and then you know what you do. It Like you, you could analyse the, the sperm and, and make sure it's exactly what you wanted and there's nothing there that you don't want and all the rest of it before. It's kind of like cloning in a way. You, you can check before you produce the, the individual that you've got the edit you want.
1: That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's guest was Dr. Allison Van Enenam of the University of California, Davis. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, the University of California, Davis didn't pay to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism produced by me in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening.